Welcome to Whiskey and Wonder. Hello, everyone. Um, we are Whiskey and Wonder, where every week we get together, we review whiskey, and we teach each other something that has made us wonder. Um, those of you guys who are on YouTube uh, probably see that Tyler, my normal co-host, is not here with me. I'm actually here with Jamie, who has been on the podcast before, uh, and uh, she's going to teach us something new this week. So, hello, Jamie. Thank you for coming. Hello. All right. Well, I don't know if I introduce, my, introduce myself. I'm Megan, if I didn't say anything. I'm not Tyler. No. <laughs> as you said. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm Jamie. Okay, cool. Um, we'll go fairly fast through all this stuff, just things we have to do, making sure uh, you go to Patreon, um, and it is patreon.com slash whiskey and wonder. Uh, we have a couple different tiers there um, where you can vote on our infinity bottles, which is going to be a bourbon, a rye, and a scotch infinity bottle. If you don't know what they are, they're basically um, our own personal blend of whiskeys, and you can vote whether we should add a certain whiskey to it or whether we should not. So um, let us know. Uh, you also can get early access to episodes, discounts, stickers, blah, 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 all sorts of fun stuff. Um if you go to whiskeyandwonder.com, you can go to our shopping tip, uh, page and our about page and whiskeys and all the other fun, exciting stuff we've done. Um, find us on social media, Instagram, at whiskeypodcast, um, and whiskeyandwonder.com. All of this that I'm saying is going to be down in the show notes for you guys. Um Thank you, everyone who donates and supports and follows, subscribes, likes, uh, reviews. Uh, we would not be here without you guys at now 91 episodes. So thank you so much for everything you do. We would not be here without you. So thank you all so much. Um, all right. I believe that means we're going to move on to this. <laughs> The open segment. All right, Jamie. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm doing okay. I'm a little nervous. I'm actually more nervous than I was when you had me on on episode <laughs> 84. <laughs> so this is gonna be fun. We're gonna see we're gonna see where this goes. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How's the squishy stem? I still have a squishy <laughs> brain stem. Um, <laughs> the doctor wanted to keep me out of work for a while, apparently. But I mean, I've I'm able to drive. I'm um, able to use electronics. I can somewhat walk in a straight line, but I never could walk in a straight line before. So like that's not changed. Um, can you, can you still write in Hindi? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> the people may not know. They probably don't. Megan texted us and was just like, Guys, that I'm reading through my notes in my in my chart or whatever. Yep, my medical chart. And they put that I could write in Hindi. <laughs> <laughs> I was mowing the lawn and I had to stop like in the middle of the yard. And I was like, what? <laughs> yep. 
Uh, apparently I speak, um, Hindi or no, I don't speak. I'm sorry. Right. It specifically said, I don't speak it. I write, I can speak and write English, but I write. You were concussed so hard into a second language. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So apparently, um, maybe if I close my eyes real tight and I just write on the paper, it'll be in Hindi. I don't know. I really want to know how they came to that conclusion. I want to as well. I'm definitely going to ask my doctor. Like, like did bro. they just have you write on a piece of paper when you went in originally? And then they just, did you just like fuck up and <laughs> <laughs> write something? And they were like, yeah, that's Hindi. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Um, that first doctor's appointment is kind of a blur. Um, I know they did have me do a lot of like motion and motor skills and stuff. So maybe they did have me write something and... Maybe I wrote in Hindi. I don't know. <laughs> so I forgot that my back is broken. Mm, okay. <laughs> it's not it's not physically broken. I just have this lower back issue that the doctors either cannot or refuse it to figure out what it is. Um, and I went yesterday, went into work, didn't wasn't in any pain, like completely forgot that I have I'm on a fi- ten pound weight limit oh, and no. picked up this big old honking lab on my table and got halfway up and both me and my boss make eye contact and both like communicated that this was a bad idea. <laughs> <sighs> so I'm doing, I'm doing okay today though. Good. Good. Well, I hope you feel better and I hope your doctors get your stuff sorted out. Um, medical issues are not fun at all. No. So I feel ya. No. Um, so squishy brainstem. Um, I speak Hindi or no, write Hindi, uh, and that's kind of what my life has been like. Um, I don't really have anything to add. What uh, about? Yeah, no, no, no. All right, cool beans. Let's do this. Opening the bottle. Oh, that is way harder than Tyler makes it look. <laughs> I, I was sitting here. Is she going to do it? Is yep. she going to do it? No, that's way harder. I see why it took Tyler 90 tries before he got it to open at the same time. All right. So uh, we are actually drinking a bourbon today that has already been done on this podcast. Um, it was done back at AB, episode 81 when Tyler ran solo teaching you guys about the Apollo 11. Um this week, we are going to be trying the Blue Run Kentucky Straight High Rye Bourbon Whiskey. Blue Run Kentucky Straight High Rye Bourbon is a small batch whiskey and is the first Blue Run product with a Bourbon Hall of Famer, Jim Rutledge, serving as the contracted master distiller. Um, it looks like Blue Run is still a fairly new distillery. Um, they don't have a ton of information and stuff out about out and about about them. Um, it looks like they were 13 years old in October of 2020. So um, that makes them what 15 now mm-hmm. or almost almost 15. Uh, so pretty new on the uh, whiskey side of things. Um, so I guess I'm going to pour us a couple of glasses and we're going to see how this is. Um, I do have written down what Tyler has rated it and Jamie and I will both rate it at the end as well. 
that's also really hard. <laughs> um, Which, slightly off topic, um, I did notice that you and Tyler started putting in, like, the timestamps mm-hmm. for stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom and stepdad are members of a certain cool club, and they need that. And I'm sure they're very appreciative, because now I can be like, look, now you have timestamps. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. That is awesome. I should. Pro- we should probably note to self mention that before we get into opening the bottle. I can't close this bottle. Yeah. Do you need do do it? Oh, I got you it. did it. I got it. <laughs> um, uh, we probably should mention that before we start pouring the whiskey. Um, that we do have time timestamps listed at the bottom of the page for in case anyone wants to skip a certain segment or. You know, you don't care about hearing us ramble in the open segment or what have you. You can um, go ahead and, you know, just move on to whatever you like. I have quite a few people I know that listen for the wonder segment and kind of ignore the whiskey. So it's nice to have a a way to just, like, skip the stuff you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, already from the little bit I've smelled this, this is a, in my opinion... I'm smelling very, very cinnamon, lots of cinnamony, big red type cinnamon spice. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just like shoved my nose in the glass. It smells like liquid big red. Yeah, it really does. It smells like liquid mm-hmm. big red. Um, and I, I'm not, maybe a little bit of oak. Um, there is some some dill, which is pretty common in anything with a lot of rye in it. Um, but overwhelmingly, this is a spicy cinnamon gum smell to me. Um, Why am I sniffing my microphone? Because <laughs> <laughs> it smells wonderful. Um Okay, well, this person says that we should be smelling cinnamon bark, rice spice, uh, caramel, and dill. And let's see if I had another one pulled up here. Uh, This one is saying um, baking spices, nutmeg, ginger, nose gets tickled. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. That's, that second sniff, I'm sure it's on the camera. I had to, like, back away from it. My, all, all the nose hairs were were tickling. All right. Have you tried it, Jamie? I have. What do you think? Okay, so I don't, I'm not really an alcohol drinker, so my um, words are not going to be as eloquent as yours. It tastes like a Christmas tree with cinnamon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I actually get 100% what you're saying. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like I need to be sitting in my house that's decorated for Christmas, drinking this. It smells like, it it tastes like Christmas. It tastes like Christmas. It really does. Um, Like, I I get, like, peppermint candy cane. It Um, burns, but it, it tastes like Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely burns. Not... To the point where I'm super uncomfortable with the burn, but you can tell it's there. Mm-hmm. It's also a very warming whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one that I would want to drink in colder months as well. 
Um, and I'm getting a bit of like pine tar, um, cinnamon for sure. Um, not getting a whole lot of the traditional bourbons flavors I would expect to get. I'm not really getting caramels or vanillas. Um, like I said, this is more pine than oak tasting. Um, and I wasn't able to pull out and taste the actual dill. In, in comparison to the one that I brought, um, which I think that was just a general run-of-the-mill Kentucky bourbon, this tastes like it has a it fuller. It just tastes fuller. Okay. I get that. I get that. Well, Jamie, we are supposed to be tasting sweet and a bit earthy. Blackberries, um, per air tea. Don't know what per air tea is. Excuse me? P-U dash E-R-H tea. Per, per a tea. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, so this person who I like theirs more are saying that, um, it's a long finish, which 100% is true. The palate is overwhelmingly cinnamon spice layered with, um, they say burnt oak, I say pine tar, um, and a little bit of cake batter. Cake what, batter? Yeah, cake batter is let me, what Let they, me come back into this. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah, you, you do that, because I did not taste any type of sweet cake batter at all. Um, I did not Where? go. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I did not go back through and listen to Tyler's episode either, so I don't remember what oh, he, um, what he tasted or like any anything specific about this whiskey. So uh, I'm trying to go through it fairly quickly um, because I know you guys have already heard about this whiskey before, um, and uh, we have a pretty cool wonder segment to get to. However. Before we do from that, let's hear about our sponsor. Ooh, sponsor. Yeah. So here at Whiskey and Wonder, we love our dogs just as much as our whiskey, which is why we love our partnership with BarkBox, the monthly subscription service to spoil your pooch. BarkBox will send you two specially themed toys, two bags of treats, and a chew every month. Our pod dogs go crazy seeing their new goodies every month, and their themes are always super exciting, like Star Wars, Harry Potter, and Stranger Things. Get a free box when you sign up using our link at BarkBox.com slash Whiskey and Wonder, and that is Whiskey with an E, and the and is spelled out, A-N-D. Again, that is BarkBox.com slash Whiskey and Wonder. I vote for a Whiskey and Wonder Bark Box toy. I would die. That would be so cool. All right. It's time for the, the Wonder segment. I fucked that up. <laughs> I fucked that up real bad. Did you? Because that sounded great to me. Oh. No, I fucked that up real bad. Where did you go wrong? I double hit it. You didn't hear it echoing over itself? Nope. Okay, maybe maybe it didn't. Maybe it only played in my headset that it did that. Either that or I'm just so nervous I just blacked the whole thing out. We're going to leave it like that because Tyler didn't tell me how to like pause the video and edit it and stuff. So we're, uh, 
We're going to do that. We're winging it, guys. Like, we are really winging it. <laughs> we are. Like, I have a squishy brainstem. Jamie's never done this before as, like, a like a co-host. Um, and, you know, we're... Uh, and that's what that's why that today is going to be the best episode ever. True. Just chaos. <laughs> Absolute chaos. <laughs> I am so excited to learn what you are going to teach me about Jamie. Um, I'm I'm the fact that you haven't been annoyed because I have been texting you periodically through the week going, should I do this? Should I do this? Oh, I'm so excited. I am like ready. Okay. So from the moment you texted me about this and you were like, hey, um, you want to do you want to do the podcast thing with me on this day? And I was like, fuck, yeah, I do. Um, immediately knew I wanted to do a serial killer. Amazing. Yep. Um, however, I'm bougie when it comes to my serial killers. Okay. Yep. Uh, I did not want to do somebody like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, because they're boring. Everyone's done that. Yep. Everybody, everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows what they're about. Do better, guys. Yes. <laughs> um, so I communicated amongst a couple people, um, and I was like, this is kind of who I'm thinking about doing. Uh, what do you think? And everybody looked at me and they were like, ooh, when's this podcast come out? How do we how do we subscribe? So I guess I did something right. I guess I picked the right guy. All right. So I would like to introduce to you, Megan, uh, Ricardo Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Oh, snap. Or as the rest of us weird people, Richard Ramirez. Now, when it comes to the child, his childhood and his backstory, um, you and I can both sit here and probably have a very lengthy conversation about the whole nature versus nurture argument. Oh my God. I could talk about nature versus nurture for yeah, hours. Yeah. We, we, you and I both could like on both sides just yes. like. Yeah. Just go all and go day. And go. Um, this, it's a lot. Um, this may end up being a two parter. Okay. I, I knew his childhood was not the greatest. Strap in, Megan. Okay, I'm I'm pulling down the like <laughs> the handlebars. Yep. I'm like getting ready for the roller coaster. It's like going. And... Yeah. I I'm gonna go ahead and say this now, uh, for those that need it. This is your trigger warning, because if I trigger if if like I pinpointed everything, every other word out of my mouth would be trigger <laughs> warning. Um, there is going to be a lot of heavy topics with this one. Okay. It, it gets dark. Okay. <laughs> Real quick. <laughs> um, then again, this is your uh, trigger warning, guys. If you are not a fan of true crime, you don't want to hear about uh serial killer. Uh, there, there's going to be some, some essay conversations yeah. in this as well. So. All right. Uh, amazing. And this is the Night Stalker, right? The, yes. The original Night Stalker. Yep. All right. Alrighty, so Richard Ramirez was born on February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. He was the youngest of five children. His parents' names were Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Now, when it comes to his parents, um, it was very quickly evident that parental abuse seems to track, like, all the way back with these people. Like, it just doesn't stop. Okay, as far back as the line can go. Uh, yep. Um... And one of the documentaries that I was watching, basically just all they kept saying was the Ramirez, like, quick to anger. They're, 
and um where, where did I go? Yeah, their temper. Could not figure out that word. Um, this didn't stop with his dad either. Um, so he was one of those to where he was just like, he grew up with it and he was like, I'm never going to beat my children. Did fine for what seems like a pretty good bit and then just decided not to, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um... Three of the children, the first three specifically, um, were they developed birth defects from the atomic bomb testing done in El Paso back in 1945. This, yep, this bomb was the same design as the bomb Fat Man, which was the one dropped over Nagasaki, Japan. The fourth child, the sister, the only sister, seemed to have no health issues. Um, when it came time that his mother got pregnant with Richard, she was working in a boot factory, and her position was to mix chemicals. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And as, of course, the TikTok song goes, OSHA violations. <laughs> mm-hmm. She worked hands-on with these chemicals with little to no ventilation or any kind of PPE. She was told by her doctor at five months pregnant she would have to leave her job because of the negative effects it was having on her and the baby. When Richard was born, he seemed to have no obvious birth defects, so (laughs) mom goes back to work full-time and dad goes to work on the railroad, so when he's basically never home, but when he is, he's beating the children. Um, At one point, uh, the children were reportedly left home alone when Richard was two. And uh, the way it read, he climbed the bookcase, an open bookcase, and it fell on top of him and crushed him and left him knocked out for 20 minutes. Oh, so he has some brain damage. It gets worse. He has a squishy stem, too. He's got a, the whole thing squishy, <laughs> Megan. Um, And then at one point when he was just a little bit older, he's... Him and his sister are out playing in the backyard. And uh, at this point, I want to say, like, he was, we're talking like three to five at this point. He has developed some over-hyperactivity, um, pro- probably some some ADHD going on. Uh, and he and his sister are outside playing, and he decides that he wants to run full steam at a swing. And essentially clotheslines himself. Oh, no. (laughs) And is knocked out for a second time for a period of 20 to 30 minutes. I Uh, want to feel bad for him, but I know who he is. uh, Exactly. I like can't. (laughs) Um, After this, he developed epilepsy and was told that he would be fine. He'd grow out of it. He didn't need any medications or any kind of follow-ups. But the the area in his brain where the epilepsy was was not his squishy brain stem was in his frontal lobe which is known to cause personality changes uh temper behavioral changes and obsessive thoughts yeah interesting but now nah, he's fine he's fine so at this point, when Richard is 12, his cousin Miguel Ramirez comes home from Vietnam, a decorated war hero. 
Um, this is important for a minute. Okay. We need to remember Miguel. Okay. Remember Miguel. Yep. Miguel comes home and starts boasting about how he loved his time in Vietnam because he could kill people without punishment. And he would talk about all the people that he killed and all the women that he raped in his time in Vietnam. Jesus Christ. No, my grandfather was in Vietnam. We don't talk about Bruno. (laughs) We just don't. You let him talk about it when him wants to, but the most you're ever going to get is the music and, like, the stuff that he ate. Oh, wow. He's not going to go into... You, he, I have never heard that man go into detail. Wow. Um, in fact, one time uh, I went upstairs and he had fallen asleep in his bed and his glasses were all cockeyed. He fell asleep reading a, ma- a wine magazine. <laughs> and, like, it was laying over his head. His glasses were all cockeyed and... So I was like, I'm going to be the good granddaughter, and I'm going to go tuck him in. I'm going to go turn his lights off and tuck him in. Megan, my finger, microscopic, like one singular skin cell of my finger touched that magazine, and he snatched me up by the wrist so hard and so fast. (laughs) I think I paid myself. (laughs) I'm glad he didn't punch you out. Uh, Yeah. He didn't realize he did this. In fact, I just told him about that here recently. This was years ago. Wow. He didn't realize he had done that. <laughs> he he kind of made a joke. He's like, well, if you didn't look like, look like one of the North Vietnamese. <laughs> I don't think you look Vietnamese. No, I don't. he was joking. Okay, he was joking. Was that like, was like the one. Viet- yeah, that's the one Vietnam reference I think I have ever gotten out of him. Oh, wow. So I learned then that that PTSD is real. (laughs) Facts. Um, So, yeah. So for this man to come home and just let me tell you what I did at work for years, I can't even imagine. Um, So the more he's, you know, the more he talks, the Richard starts to get more fascinated with Miguel and Miguel's stories. Um, Miguel starts to show him pictures that he took, he himself, Miguel took, while over in Vietnam. And these pictures included Miguel's assaults on women and him cutting off their heads. Miguel also brought back eight shrunken heads with him and showed these to Richard on a regular basis. Uh Mm -hmm. It's at this point in Richard's life where Richard himself says that he started to become aroused by looking at the photos and by holding the heads. He's 12. He's 12 at this point. I mean, that's right at, like, puberty age is starting. Uh, and Yep. I mean, you're giving... Oh, and we've got uh, squishy brain. Oof. Man, yep. that's not... This kid is not set up for success. Yep. Nope. And so he starts to... I guess every opportunity he has, um, he's over at Miguel's house. And Miguel starts to teach him how to kill with stealth and how to hide and become invisible. Now, on May 4th, 1973, Richard is 13. He goes over to good old Miguel Buddy's house, hanging out, playing pool and smoking weed. Miguel's wife, Jessie, comes home from shopping, and she and Miguel get into some kind of verbal altercation over the fact that Miguel is hanging out continuously with a 12-year-old and doesn't have a job. Yeah, I'd be pretty mad. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Miguel supposedly calmly walks out of the room, goes into the kitchen, grabs a thirty-eight caliber handgun, walks back into the room, 
looks at Jesse and shoots her in the face in front of their two young children and in front of Richard. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I don't. I. Okay. Wow, Miguel. Yep. Good old Miguel. Well. Yep. <laughs> Richard, the next school year, uh, moves out of his parents' house and moves into his sister's house. And if this already isn't an instruction manual for how to build a serial killer, it is now. Her husband, the older sister Rose, I believe was her name. Rose's husband is a peeping Tom and regularly takes 13-year-old Richard out on his escapades. Why? One, why would you do it in the first place? But two, why in the hell would you take a little your child? Your nephew, like a child in general, but your nephew. Yep. Yeah, this is definitely how to create a serial killer. It is. It's the, the actual instruction manual. I knew we would have fun with this one. <laughs> um, so, yep, start Richard, you know, learns how to become a peeping Tom. It's also around this age that he starts to develop a serious interest in Satanism and the occult. And he starts using cocaine that he gets from Miguel. And that just exacerbates everything. Miguel is out of, doesn't go to jail? N- nope. Actually, no, I lied. He does end up getting arrested for Jesse's murder. And he gets out for insanity because he's a PTSD veteran. Didn't know what he was doing. Yep. And but, he has, does he, did, do you know if he had, con, or not contact, but custody of his kids? I don't. I did not hear anything about that. Okay. I Yikes. do know, I do know he gets out. Though. Okay. Um. And I'm sure the cocaine is exactly what he needs for his seizures. Oh, yeah. That's not that's going to make it better. Yep, that helps. Sure. At the age of 15, he gets a job at the Holiday Inn in El Paso and eventually is given a master key to the hotel. It's here where, he, where we get introduced to his very first victim. Richard, with this job and with this master key, has access to every room in the hotel and eventually starts entering the hotel rooms at night. And from best that I could figure out, he just stares at people while they're sleeping. That is one of my worst nightmares. Mm-hmm. And why would you give a 15-year-old a master key to anything? Exactly. It was a different time, I guess. It was the 70s. <laughs> Jesus. I do not like the past. No, thank you. Nope. Um... So, yeah, he, like, stares at people, will occasionally rob them if he can figure out if they've got valuables on them or whatnot. He enters the home of a, or not the home, Jesus, the hotel room of a woman and attacks her from behind and attempts to sexually assault her. But luckily was thwarted when her husband enters the hotel room and beats the absolute shit out of Richard. Good. And that should have been the end of everything. Yep. Should have been. Should be story over. Should have been. He beats Richard so bad, he is unrecognizable and is knocked out for a third time. Has to go to the hospital. Um, Richard is arrested for this, but the charges are dropped because the couple didn't want anything to do with it. I, I have a feeling the husband just didn't want to go to jail or didn't was afraid of legal ramifications for almost obliterating this child. 
I am sure you're right. Yep. Um, when, when he is arrested for this initially, the family was so shocked. So shocked that he had done this. Not there, Richie. Not him. Oh. Mm-mm. Nope. This is not his normal behavior. Uh, who, who exactly was shocked? Was it Miguel? <laughs> <laughs> what? The, the whole siblings, Miguel, everybody, I guess. But yeah, like I said, the charges were dropped. The family wanted nothing to do with the case. And he was released back to his mother. A year later, this is, this is it. A year later, good old Miguel is released from the mental asylum where he spent his time as a PTSD-stricken Vietnam veteran. And the minute he comes home, guess who's right back to spending every day with, with Miguel? Oh, Richie. Little Richie. Yep, little baby Richie. For the next two years, they spend just about every day together. And in February of 1978, Richard gets on a bus without telling anybody and moves to L.A. Just hops on a bus. Didn't even tell Miguel. Just peace out, Coast Cats. It is at this point, he's knee-deep in his fascination with Satanism. They never really, like, in, with anything that I read and watched with this, they never really, like, this is the moment where he, like, discovered Satanism. It just fell in his lap. Yep. It probably might have something to do with the shrunken heads. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Yep. He gets deeper and deeper into his fascination with Satanism, and his addiction to cocaine gets stronger. Um, here's going to be another trigger warning for you. After living a year in L.A., Richard commits his first rape on a woman um, and goes on record saying that after this first rape, he felt elaborated and was left, quote, craving for more. Shortly after the attack, he met Anton LaVey, the author of the Satanistic Bible and the founder of the Church of Satan. I think I pronounced his last name correctly. LaVey? I, I, I don't know. Um, he attends several ceremonies um, and described that he felt like he had been touched. Although I guess it's instead of touched by God, he felt touched by Satan. Modern Satanists don't even believe in Satan. Right. That's what I thought. Like, like Satanists don't believe in Satan. They just, <laughs> I, they just are anti-establishment, aren't they? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Richard continues to live addicted on cocaine and com- committing like petty blur- beanies, burglary, until the evening of June 27th, 1984. Richard is 24 at this point. On this night, he encounters the person who is thought to be his first actual murder victim. He's at the bus station in L.A. and buys two grams of cocaine, does his thing with the cocaine, and drives to a town, a small town in L.A., looking for a house to rob. He settles himself on the apartment of Jenny Venkow. He attempts to enter through an open window, but can't because there's a screen in the way. He struggles with the screen and eventually takes off his gloves. He removes the screen and enters the apartment. 
After searching the apartment while Jenny is asleep in her bed, he realizes that there is nothing significant of value in the home. And this angers him. He becomes so enraged that there was not anything worth taking in the house. He repeatedly stabs Jenny in the chest. Jenny wakes up, starts fighting for her life. Richard fights back and cuts Jenny's throat so deep he almost severed her head completely. After killing her, he violates her dead body. After Jenny's murder, Richard's cocaine addiction becomes all-encompassing at this point. Like, he is strung out. And Richard makes the decision that he needs to seek treatment for his cocaine addiction so he could focus on getting off the hard drugs, but not just so he could get sober and stay sober. It was so he could get sober and focus on killing. Oh, yay! <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, brilliant. There's a motive. Whoa. Yep. On March 17th, 1985, a little over a year later, after Jenny's murder, Richard buys a 22 caliber revolver. Now that he's armed and dangerous, he steals a car and goes out with the intent of finding a second victim. Driving through L.A., he comes across Maria Hernandez, who is driving back to her apartment. He, starts to fo- he makes the decision to follow her, and after she parks her car in the garage, I guess it was one of those apartments that like, has an attached g- garage. I guess she was on a bottom level. Uh, he exits the vehicle. After Maria exits her vehicle, he approaches her and shoots her. But unbeknownst to him, as Maria falls to the ground, the bullet did not strike her. It deflected off of her keys, and she plays dead in the floor of the, in the, floor of the garage. Richard, at this point, thinking Maria is dead, enters the ap- apartment and fi- finds Dela Okasaki hiding behind the kitchen counter. Mm. He knows she's there. And he stands there and waits for Dela to think that he has left the apartment. What a sick fucker. Mm-hmm. He waits for her to think that he's left. And the moment she pokes her head over that counter to check to see if he's gone, he shoots her in the head, killing her instantly. As Richard goes to leave the apartment, there in the doorway <laughs> stands Maria who says, you have already shot me once. Do you need to shoot me again? Richard looks at her and just leaves. What the fuck? Yep. That woman had some cojones. <laughs> yes. Like, how? I would have stayed in the garage for days. Yep, and, I would not have come out. Yep, like, it, it would have taken, like, the police coming and, like, opening the garage, because I, I would not ever leave. I would yep, like, nope, Whoa. I live there now. Yep. In in that tiny, I'm gonna assume fetal position in the ground like yep, that's this that's is my home. house. Yep. Yep. Damn the balls to just go. Do you need to shoot me again, mm-hmm. motherfucker? No, no, don't need to shoot you again. You live. What and the fuck? Yep. He and I guess he just looks at her and they have this awkward like stare off for a few minutes and he dips. He as he leaves the scene, he left his ACD. ACDC ball cap and left his shoe print at the scene. 
It is after this attack and this murder that he is given the name the Night Stalker. All right, there's the, there's the name. Yep, he is born. Within hours of leaving the two girls' apartment, Richard finds the third victim, uh, Taya Liam. That's wrong. That's her middle name. Taya Liam Yu, also called Veronica. He follows her while driving again. And at this point, after a while of following her, she catches on that she's being followed. And you thought Maria had bigger had big cojones? Veronica stops her car and approaches <laughs> approaches Rick Richard in her in his car to confront him as to why he's following her. As she approaches his car, Richard attempts to grab to to grab her through the open window and tries to pull her into the car. They struggle. He realizes he cannot get her into the car, and he shoots Veronica into the in the side, and she dies before she can make it to the hospital. Oh my God! The seventies was a different time. Yep. Jesus. Going back to your um, Memphis Three. Yeah. Uh, there were several times writing this that I was like, do better, please. <laughs> like, <sighs> it took you this long to figure it out. Um, the police quickly connected the crimes, um, from the description given by Maria and the witnesses to Veronica's murder. There were witnesses? Yes, there were witnesses. Frank Solanero was assigned as lead detective on the case. Frank Salerno, I keep trying to drop the L, the L, was the co-detective that had worked on the Hillside Strangler case and who helped put him away. So he thinks he knows all about the serial killers. After this, after the murder of Veronica, he de- Richard devotes himself to Satan and convinces himself that the more murders he commits the more Satan will approve of him and the more he, like, will be given Satan's blessing, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Uh, there, there's so much wrong with that. All of it. it that I, <laughs> All of it. I just... I can't. This is flabbergasting. Mm-hmm. What in the world? We're three paragraphs into this. My God. (laughs) Out of eight pages. (laughs) On March 27th, 10 days after the murder of Veronica, he and the the other girl, um, he sets out on a murder mission. He goes hunting, essentially. Like, he goes out with the intent to kill. Don't like that. And drives to a house that he had burglarized a year prior. Throughout all of this, he's like going back to just small, petty little B&Es. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. The home belonged to Vincent and Maxine Zazaria. He looks through the window, sees Vincent sleeping on the couch downstairs. He enters the home through the utility room window walks up to Vincent and shoots him in the head. The bullet, according to the autopsy results, 
zigzagged through his brain. And yet, somehow, some way, Vincent is able to stand up to confront Richard. And according to the investigation report, it's when he stands up, blood, like, launched three feet from his head onto the wall behind him. People in the 70s were a different breed. They were. <laughs> like, humanity was different. Whoa. Um, he stands up, but that's that's it. He drops. Ugh. Um, I, man, I was rooting for him. Yep, I was too when I was reading these reports. Um, he stands to his feet, and then he collapses. Hearing the shot, his wife Maxine wakes up, but before she can even get completely out of the bed, Richard is already in the bedroom. He points the gun at her and demands to know where her jewelry is kept. As Richard robs her, like goes throughout the room and robs her, Maxine reaches for a shotgun kept under the bed. She points the gun at Richard and pulls the trigger, only to realize that the gun was not loaded. Fuck. Mm-hmm. I thought long and hard about the one in my bedtime table <laughs> after reading this. Because I'm, I'm a don't keep one in the chamber type of person. However, I've been debating that after this. Oh, I, <sighs> I am definitely a don't keep one in the chamber type of person. But that is terrifying. Yep. He hears the click of the gun and becomes completely enraged. He turns around, shoots Mac Maxine three times, and then beats her body. How dare you try to shoot me when I just killed your husband? husband yep. And was probably going to kill you. Um, decides that just shooting her three times and beating her wasn't enough. And he pulls out a knife and attempts to cut her heart out. When this fails because he can't break through the ribs and the chest cavity, he cuts her eyes out. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And then, we're still not done. He rapes her body before... Leaving the house. I can't. Yep. After leaving the Zazara home, Richard returns to his place of residence, which is none other. Look at me, Megan. I'm looking at you. Is none other than the Cecil Hotel. The entire stint of most of these murders, he is living inside the Cecil Hotel. How did I not know he lived in the Cecil Hotel? You legit didn't know this? I didn't know he lived in the Cecil Hotel. I thought I was going to overdramatize this, and you were going to be like, yep, I knew. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you this part. I'm going to go on a... Yeah, let's, let's like, we're going to take a detour on the bus. Yep. But we'll get back to the main road. I'm going to detour the bus, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, because I texted you and Bella and my wife in the group chat, freaking out one day. Because thinking that I had solved a murder. <laughs> you thought it was a Cecil Hotel murder? Elisa Lamb. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. So she disappears. Everybody knows her story. If you don't, get out from under your rock. She basically, the hotel footage, like, she is on camera running from something. It, oh, I'm going to have to do a whole wonder segment on um, Eliza Lamb. Please have Lam. me on when you do this. I, I will now. Um, take note, Tyler. But, because that's one of, like, my most wanted to do wonder segments. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, highly 
recommend if you don't want to wait however many months it's going to be or weeks or whatever, uh, go look up her tale because mm-hmm. it is that footage is terrifying. It, yes, I watched it and just chills and nausea, and I just yep. It, like I she felt is like I was watching active, something. You can yeah. see her like in the body language and everything. The fear that this yeah. woman has. Um, so I have told you this before. Kayla and I fall asleep to Ghost Adventures every night for years. Like we just, when we get to the end, we just restart it, <laughs> start all the way back. Um, they did a Cecil Hotel episode and they communicate with Elisa Lamb and they ask her like, who was following you? And in a spirit box session, she says the devil. So here's me. I legit for two minutes thought that I had solved it. I was like, nope, it wasn't the devil. Everything lines up. It was Richard Ramirez. He was chasing her through the hotel. Way too modern. Uh, Yeah, well, like I had Kayla sold on this. I had the receptionist at work sold on this. I thought I was going to sell you on this. And then Kayla busted my bubble and was like, did you check the dates? And he died after she did, so it could not have been Richard. You mean before? He he died after she did. So he was alive when she died? hmm Wait a minute. I'm very confused. Wait a minute. If he was alive when she died, technically it could have been him. Technically. Oh, my God. I think, I I'm think just he died here. before. He, so she died... She died. I may be getting my dates wrong. She either died in June and he died in February, or it was reversed. All right. So Richard, we're going to figure this out live. Yep. I uh, died in June seventh, twenty thirteen, and Eliza Lamb. Uh, my whole premise was the ghost of Richard Ramirez was like haunting the fuck out of her. She died February 19th and he died June 7th. So he was still alive. So it could have been him. Um, <laughs> oh my God. This, this guy's is me and Megan's brains just erupting just live <laughs> yeah welcome to the the wonder segment guys that's yep. why we call it wonder yep wow okay let's skirt the bus yep. back onto the road yep. let me reroute let me reroute so yeah this whole time he's staying at the cecil hotel <sighs> and um so after the zazara murder he goes and retreats back to the hotel. Um, and he stays in the hotel um, for pretty much, I don't know what else to call it other than a cooling off period. It was only two weeks. Um, living off the money that he had made from selling the Zazara's jewelry. While he was, while this was going on, the police are struggling to locate and identify him. Uh, Frank is convinced that the Zazara murder and the double murders that he had committed prior were not related at all to completely separate people. 
but Frank's partner, uh, Gil Gararilo? <laughs> what the fuck? I just stroked out. C-A-R-R-I-L-L-O. Carillo. Carillo? Yep. Carillo. 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 Yep. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks otherwise. He's like, mm, nope. It has to be the same guy. On the early morning of April 14th, Richard uh, goes back out on the hunt on one of his little murdy missions and settles on the home belonging to a senior couple, uh, William and Lillian Doi, D-O-I. He breaks into the home through an open bedroom window, sees Lillian asleep on the bed. Um, He looks around the room and quickly realizes that Lillian is disabled because she has a wheelchair somewhere in the room. He leaves her alone. He spares her and makes his way through the house, uh, assumingly looking for stuff to steal, and walks into a bedroom where her husband, Will, is sleeping. Um, he looks around the room and discovers that Will has a gun on the bedside table, and he just, I guess, doesn't want to deal with it. And he walks up to Will and starts to load his revolver. It was not already loaded. He starts to load it, and the sound of this wakes Will up. He reaches for his own gun on the bedside table, um, but before he could do anything with it, Richard shoots William in the mouth. Jesus. Um, he then ret- leaves the room um, and returns to Lillian's bedroom and binds her in thumb cuffs and then proceeds to rape Lillian. This little old lady. This little old lady. God, this guy is sick. She was in her late 70s. God. Mm-hmm. And then burglarizes the house before, before eventually leaving. Um, fortunately, uh, William is still alive. He did not die from the gunshot. Wow. And he has enough strength to call 911 um, before eventually passing away at the hospital. Um, Lillian eventually suffered a stroke um, a few months after the attack, no, I lied. I'm wrong. My timeline is fucked up. She had suffered a stroke prior to the attack, which had left her unable to talk a whole lot. So she could not give a detailed description, but she was able to give enough that police were starting to think that this may have been. This is a pattern. Yep. This may be the same guy. Ugh. Um, police and detective are struggling, uh, to link the connection to the attacks, but they are starting to notice a theme. Um, he keeps leaving, throughout all of this, he keeps leaving the same brand shoe print. And it's always just one. It's always just one (laughs) singular shoe print. 
Um, the only thing that is tripping the police up, um, it sounds like half of the police department was like, yeah, this is the same guy. And the other half was like, no, this can't be the same guy. Was the fact that Richard was not sticking to a demographic. He didn't have a type. Yep, he didn't have a type. He was choosing his victims at random. Um, the dates for the next victim seemed to differ. I was getting conflicting dates. Um, but after a similar two-week cooling-off period, uh, Richard, you know, secludes himself in the Cecil um, and then comes back out about two weeks later and travels outside of L.A. to Manavura, California, which was last, when I looked, like just, just outside L.A. He doesn't really have a reason to be here. Like, there's nothing going on in, in Manavura for him. But roughly at 11.30 p.m., he parks his car, out the stolen car, outside of the home of two elderly sisters, Mary Bell and Nettie Lang. Richard enters the home through the unlocked front door. Lock your doors, people. Lock your doors. Yep. He enters through the door and rummages through the home while the two sisters are napping. He finds nothing of value and becomes irate. How dare you not keep anything of value? Oh, well, yeah. And we already knows what we what? already knows. We um, already know what he does when he gets mad. Yeah, Richard does not uh, handle his temper well. Nope. After finding a hammer in the kitchen, he attacks both women, starting with Mary Bell before moving on to Nettie. And he raped Nettie after he beat her with a hammer. With this attack, something happened in Richard's brain, and he decided to let everyone know that he was at the scene of the crime by leaving a pentagram that he drew in lipstick on the inside of Nettie's leg and on the wall behind her bed before leaving the home. I, I, I told you this gets dark real fast. Mary Beth survives for six weeks after the attack, but unfortunately succumbs to her injuries. Nettie survives, but is left permanently unable to speak. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. After he attacked Mary Bell and Nettie, Megan's like, I need a minute. <laughs> the day after he attacked Mary Bell and Nettie, Richard goes out again. There is no two-week cooling-off period. He goes out the next day. Jesus fucking fuck. Yep, on the hunt for another victim. Oh, no. This time, he finds himself in Burbank. He enters the home of Carol Kyle, a divorced Younger, like 30-ish-year-old woman and her 11-year-old son. He locks the, locks the boy in the closet while he repeatedly sexually assaults the mother before finally leaving. Like, he just, he doesn't kill her. He doesn't rob her. He just does his thing and leaves. Carol is able to give a very detailed description to the police, but because the sketch artist didn't know how to draw... <laughs> The representation was so drastically different than those previously given, so Richard was not linked to this attack. How, how can you be a sketch artist and not draw? 
This is where I started to become annoyed and started to think about your Memphis 3 episode. <laughs> like, your entire job is, is to, to draw, draw <laughs> yep. human faces as yep. they're described to you. Mm-hmm. He, the other two survivors had described him with bulging eyeballs and janky teeth. And apparently what was drawn was, I guess, the exact opposite of that. In early June, Richard starts to develop oh so slightly, or devolve, not develop. He starts to devolve just oh so slightly and has two failed B&E attempts, which is breaking and entering. One being the home of an L.A. deputy sheriff. Wow, he's getting brave. Yep, he gets brave and he fucks it up so fast. Upon his attempt to enter the home of the deputy sheriff, the wife is alerted and she calls her husband, who is somewhere in the house. Realizing the homeowners are aware of his attempts to get in the house, Richard abandons the scene of the crime, leaving behind a singular footprint. One footprint. One footprint outside one of the bedroom windows. Richard is furious that he was not able to finish what he had intended, uh, what he intended to start, and started driving around L.A. when he was pulled over by LAPD. This is what the should have been, or could have been, the third attempt to just end it, just end it here. Jesus, they let him go, don't they? Greatly. God. Richard is somehow unable to discard his firearm without alerting the police officer, and the officer approaches Richard in his car. As the officer is approaching, a description of Richard is being given by dispatch, and he can hear it over the LAPD's radio. He does his best to remain calm, and then the good old copper man... Jokes with, looks at Richard while this description is being given. No, you're not about to say what you're about to say. I'm going to say it. No, you're not. No. He looks at him and goes, hey, you're not that Mexican guy walking around killing people at night, are you? He kind of looks like you. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, no, not me. (laughs) Which is exactly what happened. (laughs) Nope. Not me, Mr. Sir. The officer walks back to his car, and when the officer's back is turned, Richard draws a pentagram on the dashboard of the car, exits the vehicle... What the fuck? ...and takes the fuck off and escapes. Have a good day, officer. Sir, I told you to strap in, Megan. Oh, my God. I told you you weren't ready. I I just... I can't at this point. To quote you, I can't even. Mm-hmm. After this run-in with the officer, Richard somehow convinces himself, maybe through all the cocaine, that the police have nothing on him and don't know who the fuck he is. I mean, they did just let him fucking walk away. This, so yeah. I might also be like, all right, y'all, fine. You just describe me to a T and then we're like, you're, you're not. Yep, he's definitely right? not that Mexican man killing people at night. Dear God. On July 2nd, he drives to Arcadia out on another hunt. 
this is all, let me preface this, this is all within like 1985. I didn't include the year because it was all in the, all in the same year. This is so much. Yep. He drives to Arcadia and then stops outside the home of 75-year-old Mary Cannon. He takes the screen off of the front window and enters the home and goes straight to Mary Cannon, who I guess is out and about in her house, and beats her with a vase lamp before stabbing her in the neck with a kitchen knife. He ransacks the home and then drives back to L.A. where he sells all of the stolen items. The police are alerted the next morning and finds a singular shoe print outside of Is the home. Is he doing that shit on purpose? I don't know. It didn't sound like it. But we'll get back to the shoe. We'll, we'll get to the shoe later. Okay. Okay. The shoe becomes important. Okay. The police start linking him. Like, they start putting shit together um, through the shoe print. And starts posting about him in the newspaper. Like, he's made it to front page at this point. Night Stalker is out and about with one shoe. Um, he realizes that the police are looking for him, but this does not deter him. All it does is inflate his ego. Just three days after murdering Mary Cannon, he goes back out. We're done with the two weeks. We're done with the with the resty break. Don't need that cooling period no more. I can, nope. I can do this back, back, yep. back, back. He settles on the home of the Benet family. Not John Benet. Different Benet. He settles on the home of the Benet family and walks right through, yet again, another unlocked front door. People, lock your fucking lock your doors. doors. Oh, my God. Even if you live in a tiny-ass small town, lock your fucking door. Uh, like, I keep my doors locked. Granted, it's to keep narcissists away but that works <laughs> too <laughs> i'm not trying to get murked in my sleep yeah no i mean i have the bedroom door locked like yep like you have I, to get through several locks to get to me yep, first i used to do that too until a child entered my life and now i keep the bedroom door unlocked fair i mean a child might need you yeah well more so child wanders <laughs> i need to hear um, he plans to murder the family, but gets spooked after he looks out the window and sees a police car patrolling outside. He grabs a tire iron because there's just randomly a tire iron in these people's house. You, you don't have a tire iron just sitting around your house? I have one right in my there? car, but <laughs> nope, it's not you, one I keep in my house. You don't have it just sitting there on the counter? Nope. Oh. Well, yeah. I think I think it's in the pantry. <laughs> You've come over to my house. You don't see me move the tire iron out of the way before I cook. Oh, yeah, and it makes sense. Yep. Um, he grabs a tire iron and bludgeons the 16-year-old daughter, who, uh, for all the children, I didn't name names because that just didn't feel right. No, I... Mm, that's sad. Um, he bludgeons the 16-year-old daughter... While she's unconscious, he tries to strangle her with some kind of cord that she has in her bedroom. He is shocked to see sparks coming from the cord and is hella spooked at this point that the daughter is still breathing and believes that Jesus Christ has intervened to save the girl. And this scares him enough that he leaves the house. 
and leaves behind yet again one shoe print. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? The girl survives, Thank but God. is left unrecognizable and requires 478 stitches to her head and face. Was there any head and face left, or was it just a stitch? I, I don't know. I would imagine after being that badly, being beaten that badly with a tire iron, the only thing that I can imagine in my brain is ground beef. That's all I, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I don't know how she survived. That's by the grace of God, apparently. Wow, that is, whoa. (sighs) He leaves the home on a high wanting to kill again, and he drives around looking for a second victim that night. Maybe Jesus won't come help this one. (sighs) Jesus. Oh, my God. Genius. Genius. (laughs) Genius Jesus only enters the chat once, and this was it. Um, He settles himself on the home of Sophie Dickman. It is unclear where he entered the home at, but upon entry, he handcuffs Sophie and rapes her at gunpoint. He steals her. He goes around the house and steals her jewelry. He drags her by her hair through the house and makes her like tell him where shit's kept at one point she looks at him and says quote i swear to god i have nothing left of value like that's it richard says don't swear to god swear to satan okay yep bitch i swear to satan there's nothing left (laughs) He makes her swear to Satan that nothing is left in the home, and he leaves. He leaves Sophie alive. Wow. (sighs) LAPD is working with other, like, local surrounding police departments at this point and had discovered that there were only 1,354 pairs of this Avia brand shoe that had ever been made. This is it. All right. All right, that boot. That boot's coming. Yep. I told you to remember the shoe. This is it. Hard to forget it when it's been everywhere. Yep. Of the 1,354 pairs of shoes made, only six of them were sold in L.A. Okay, you find those six people. One of them's your guy. Even better. Of those six, they were able, through the footprint, they were able to figure out that Richard was a size 11. Of the six, only one size 11 shoe had been sold. Aw, snap. Mm-hmm. Um, they had also, a, like, they took the car that he ditched back Way back when, when he was pulled over by that uh, stupid-ass LAPD officer. Um, but, ironically, they kept the car outside. This is California. Shit gets real hot in California. And because the car had been kept outside, the fingerprints from outside the vehicle and most of the inside prints had been burned off. I didn't know that as a thing that could happen. Uh, me neither. Um, but apparently when it gets really hot, maybe, maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say fingerprinting technology was not advanced as it is now. 
That's what I'm choosing to think. Okay. Okay. I can let that slide. Yep. Yep. But they were able to find a wallet in in the car with a dental appointment card and six phone numbers. Now, I digged, and I digged, and I could not figure out who these six phone numbers belonged to. Um, but I was able to figure out that the police could figure it out, and, <laughs> and they had the homes of these six people. My nose keeps itching. I swear I'm not on cocaine. <laughs> um, they had the, the homes of these six people under 24-hour surveillance. And they went to the dental office that that card was addressed to. Um, they walked in and they spoke to the dentist. And the dentist had said that Richard had visited that dental office under the name Richard Manna. The dentist was questioned further and he told the police that he had Richard had some kind of very painful mouth condition and expected Richard to return for further work. The dentist office was also placed under 24-hour surveillance. Richard is now, at this point, very much aware that he is being sought after police. And then this is where he was like, "Mm, maybe I just need to not kill for a little bit. Oh, maybe. Yep. But only two weeks. Jesus, no! (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And after two weeks... Two weeks and about eight days, he goes back out on the hunt. And before he does this, he goes out and purchases a machete. 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 On July 20th, when he decides he's done with his cooling off period, he barges into the home of yet another elderly couple named Leela and Maxton Needling. He starts attacking them both with the machete, but realizes that it is not sharp enough and pulls out a revolver and shoots them in the head at point-blank range. He ki- this unfortunately kills them. They die instantly. I had to clarify because we've got some superhumans. <laughs> yeah. Um, he robs the home of all valuables before leaving and selling the jewelry the same day. Immediately after selling the jewelry, he gets into his car looking for another victim. He picks the home of the Kavana family and enters the house through an unlocked fucking door. Fucking lock your doors. God. (laughs) He shoots the husband in the head. And after this, he repeatedly rapes and beats the wife while the, the small son, who is eight, is sleeping. Richard finds the, the son wakes up, enters the room. Mommy, what's going on? Richard takes the son and ties him up. After doing this, Richard grabs the wife and drags her around the house looking for valuables. He makes her swear to Satan that nothing is left and he is satisfied with this answer and he leaves. And so they both survive, her and her son. Yes, her and her son both survive. Thank God. After this, the Night Stalker is everywhere in the media. He's front page newspaper. He's on CNN, in LA and immediate surrounding areas. Realizing that he's front page everywhere, but yet still believing that he is in favor with Satan, he ventures out again. 
This time, he goes to a new area of L.A., uncharted territory for him. On August 6th, Richard breaks into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. <sighs> Through an unlocked back door. <laughs> Lock your fucking doors. <laughs> While he creeps through the bedroom, he wakes Virginia up. Richard shoots her under the left eye. Chris wakes up hearing this. Husband Chris wakes up and he shoots Chris. Chris somehow manages to launch himself at Richard. And the two of them begin to grapple with each other for a while before Richard runs out of the house and escapes. Both Chris and Virginia survived the attack, Virginia being extra lucky. What? She was hit right under the eye and survived? Mm-hmm. The hospital report reads that the bullet had entered through the roof of her mouth, traveling down the back of her throat and exited the back of her neck, missing every single major artery and organ in that area. Wow. Damn. Lucky. Okay, so I said Jesus entered the chat once. Um, he, he enters oh, the chat. Oh, he is back. Yep. That's, he's back. She that's survived. That divine, divine um, intervention yeah. right there. Yep. He immediately after this attack, detectives make the first public statement to the press calling Richard a coward. This seemed like more than likely an attempt to get Richard to reveal himself, to piss him off basically. And that he did, but not in the way he wanted or that they wanted. Hearing the press release calling him a coward, Richard loses it, becomes enraged, and goes out and buys an Uzi. And for those of you that don't know what an Uzi is, it's a pocket machine gun. That's what the gangsters used in all the, yep. like, all the movies. The mm -hmm. and has, like, it the shoots 30-something rounds a minute. Two days after the attack on the Petersons. What? I just am... You're just shocked. and I am just... Yep. I can't. There are no words. I can't. Two days after the attack on the Petersons, Richard goes back out on the hunt and chooses the Abawa, A-B-O-W-A-T-H, the Abawa family. Richard opens the sliding glass door, the back sliding glass door, and enters the home. Richard surveying the house exits to reposition his car in the driveway to be sure he can get away. <laughs> Re-enters the home and shoots the husband, killing him instantly and assaults the wife. During this attack on the wife, their son wakes up and enters the room. Richard ties this little boy up and, and leaves him in a closet. Mm. And drags the wife around the house, robs her, same old shtick, makes her swear to Satan, and leaves the house. The police, at this point, publicly offer a reward for any information leading to Richard's arrest of $80,000. Knowing that people are now going to be eyeballing and looking for him harder because he now has a price tag... He checks out of the Cecil Hotel and leaves the L.A. area. He lands in San Francisco. He doesn't go far. No, that's still, the, well, California's huge, but it's still the yep. same state. Yep, he doesn't go far. He checks into the Bristol Hotel, and then within 
hours of checking into the hotel room, Richard leaves to hunt for his next victim. Is this still 1985? This is still 1985. Bruh. Yep. Peter and Barbara Pan are his next victims. Peter Pan? Peter Pan. Not Peter Pan. Oh, no. It is unclear in this case how exactly he enters the home. I hope to fucking God they lock their doors because at this point, the Night Stalker is on TV. Um, but after gaining entry into the home, he shoots Peter, killing him, and then proceeds to beat and sexually assault Barbara before finally shooting her in the head as well. Before Richard leaves the house, he draws a pentagram on the wall and writes, Jack the Knife, which I guess is an homage to Jack Jack the the Ripper. The bodies of Peter and Barbara are discovered the next day by their son and the local police department investigate the murder and very quickly link him or link the murder to the Night Stalker. And this pisses the LAPD off. Oh, I'm sure. Um... Hearing that the police in San Francisco have immediately linked him, it spooks Richard, and he returns back to L.A. On August 24th, still 1985, Richard goes out. He goes out and about and has two failed attacks on two different families. On the 27th of August, the the LAPD get a tip from the daughter of Jesse Perez. I almost said that her name was Jesse. They get a tip from a man's daughter named Jesse Perez. Or, yeah. The the man is named Jesse. The man is named Jesse. LAPD pay Jesse a visit, and after being promised protection and the $80,000 reward money, Jesse later... Those people we were talking about earlier... Um, he later reveals that he is the man that Richard was selling the stolen goods to. Richard tells the police that he knew Richard as Rick and knew that Rick was from El Paso. Damn, he couldn't even change his fuck. Nope. Didn't even try to fake his identity. He didn't even try. There was no attempt. He also tells police about how Rick had been previously arrested for stealing a car, hearing that good old Ricky Bobby had been arrested for um, stealing a car. There had to be a record, right? So the LAPD are able to go in and identify him. They identify Rick as Richard Ramirez. The Night Stalker has a name. The LA. PD released the most recent mugshot to the press of his car theft and make a press conference stealing the identity of the Night Stalker, saying, we know who you are, and soon so will the rest of California. Richard becomes aware of his face plastered all over the news and manages to board a bus on August 30th, 1985 and rides to Tucson, Arizona to meet one of his brothers. Arriving at the bus station in Tucson, Richard steps off the bus to realize that his brother is not there. 
He's quickly spooked back onto the bus by undercover L.A. police officers <laughs> and gets back on a bus and rides back to L.A. Richard steps off the bus to see that the bus station is teeming with police officers looking for him. He somehow manages to escape the eye of the police and enters a restaurant looking to buy something to eat. It's here Richard realizes that the police, or not the police, the people in the restaurant are looking him up and fucking down. People know who he is at this point. He looks over and sees a newspaper stand with his face front and center. Right there. Right there. He also sees the restaurant owner on the phone staring at him. The restaurant owner was on the phone with police, letting them know that Richard was inside the restaurant. Richard takes off out of the restaurant when he sees the homeowner on the phone with police. Richard runs onto a bus and then is spotted again. He runs off the bus and attempts to carjack a woman but fails. Fleeing the scene, Richard is now frantically running through the streets. Police sirens are wailing because they are out on red alert looking for him. Richard makes a second attempt to carjack a woman and is tackled by her wife. Let's fucking go, lesbians. Wow. Let's fucking go. In 1985? Mm-hmm. Was that legal? No, but we existed. What, <laughs> I what say, the fuck, Megan? <laughs> I didn't want to admit. I know that's not what you meant, but I had to take my opportunity. You opened a door and I walked all the fucking way through it. You like kicked the door in the rest of the way. Like, Uh, no, it was not legal. Okay. I'm Um, sorry. I didn't mean like that. I love you. I love you too. (laughs) I I know no offense needed. Megan needs, means no offense. Thank you. Yep. (laughs) Um, hearing the scuffle, um, Outside, one of the the couple's neighbors uh, comes outside and with a tire, like a metal rod, tire iron type thing, and strikes Richard over the back of the head with with the metal bar. Police cascade onto the scene and finally, finally, arrest the night stalker. Mother heck, that was the lesbians got him. <laughs> Yeah, you go lesbians. <laughs> Finally, someone did something right. So when y'all hate on us, we got the Night Stalker. <laughs> um, upon arrest, Richard immediately starts rambling about Satan and asking, begging for a gun to shoot himself. But once he realizes the police were writing down everything he's saying, he stops talking. During the investigation, Richard speaks freely about his his life in his younger years, but when questions about the murder, he stops. Once Richard family gets news of Richard's arrest and the gruesome crimes that he has committed, the family demands that this is a case of misunderstanding. Not their Richie. Couldn't have been him. They're shocked. They're stunned. There are so many witnesses, lady. Yep. <laughs> Not their Richie poo. And his sister, Ruth, um, comes in and attempts to come to his rescue. 
On September 3rd, Richard makes his first court appearance. The courthouse is packed. It's packed floor to ceiling with locals trying to get a glimpse of the Night Stalker. And strangely, a large amount of women fascinated with him. We do like our serial killers. Mm, We do. We sure do. I've got his face on a blanket, guys. (laughs) Only eight charges were read at this court hearing, and no bail was asked for. But Richard was warned that there may be more charges to come. After his first court appearance that day, Richard receives mountains of letters from female admirers convinced that he was innocent and professing their love for him. I guess this is just something that we women do. We just fawn over serial killers because they did the same thing with Ted Bundy. And there's people who, and Son of Sam, and like, yep, everyone. Yep. I don't know a single serial killer that hasn't gotten Got a fan letters that, yep. that are like, oh, marry me. Yep. Take me now. Jesus. These women. Um, ha- I would love to have a psychologist like study them and see what's, what's up there. This blows up Richard's ego even more than it was already elevated. And Richard tells his family that he is going to plead guilty for the crimes that he had committed against his his family's wishes to plead not guilty. Richard goes through two sets of lawyers before settling on Artario and Daniel Hernandez, who were like, walked out of law school and entered this case. Like, Uh they know not what the fuck they're doing and continuously delay the trial date putting off jury selection until july 1988 guys three years after years after his initial arrest what in the fuck Mm -hmm. jury selection takes around six months to complete During this time, Richard Ramirez's fan base grows massively. He gets hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of women visiting him in jail, writing him scandalous letters like the police uh, station, the jail that he was at, like actually like had to put a stop on visitors that he could have because he was getting so many. Um, Let's see. I went I went down too far. Where did I go? I lost my place. Oh, yes. Um, he makes a second court appearance uh October twenty fourth and of that same year. While in the courtroom, Richard shocks the court. And this is where he does the infamous scene where he flashes his pentagram tattoo on the palm of his hand and yells, Hail Satan, to the gallery. And he pleads not guilty to all 58 charges. After this, the two lawyers, the Hernandezes, continually, you know, push things off, push things off some more. Um, I backtracked. That happened before jury selection three years later. So that happened. We pushed jury three years later. Um, And this is where, you know, his fan base grows. And this is where I'm going to pause and say that when I told my stepdad that I was doing this wonder segment, as soon as I said who I was doing, he goes, that's the guy that married one of his fans. And I told him, I don't know, but you're going to have to listen to the podcast (laughs) to find out. So this is where we figure out if my parents are listening. Um, 
Jan, this one's for you. Hi, Jan. Yep. One of Jan's fans, a journalist named Doreen Lowy, L-O-I-Y, who wrote him daily and visited him, essentially daily, caught Richard's eye. She uh, very publicly, like, foreshamed people that were writing negative articles against him. Like, she, she would go toe-to-toe with people. Um, she even kept money on his commentary books. Uh, he catches her eye. They, she goes to visit him and one day and she dresses up for their first date. Mm, no. Mm-hmm. The two of them would eventually marry. And she shows up to every following court appearance sitting behind him. What the on that following Valentine's Day Feb- in February 1989, Richard reveal- he receives truckloads of cards, Valentine's Day cards from fans, including one from a member of the jury, Cynthia Halden. Oh, no. Who is, she's on like the pre-jury selection, and Miss Cynthia Halden was eventually sworn in as no. jury number one, because that's fucking legal. No, fire her ass. Yep. Get a mistrial. Mm-hmm. She serves on the jury as juror number one. No. No. Several court appearances shortly after. No. Um, the Hernandezes realize that they absolutely don't know what the fuck they're doing with this case and are fumbling over themselves hand over foot. And per the judge... The Hernandez lawyers are removed from the case, and a man named Ray Clark takes over. On July 26, 1989, the jury starts to deliberate, but on August 14th, the, one of the jurors named Phyllis Sing, Singlerty did not show up for deliberation. This, this kept the jury from continuing any further. And it was quickly revealed later that day that Phyllis had been murdered. Yep. Bruh. This scared the hell out of the jury because they thought somehow Richard had orchestrated this murder from prison. Megan, they weren't completely wrong. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was... It was revealed by Phyllis's boyfriend, James C. Milton, that he had shot Phyllis after the two had gotten in a fight over whether or not Richard was guilty. In a statement he made to police, Phyllis had felt sorry for Richard and believed him innocent, and apparently Mr. Milton highly disagreed. (laughs) That is a level of disagreement that I'm a little concerned with. Yep. Finally, um, at 10.50 a.m. on September 20th, 1989, four years after Richard's arrest, the jury reached their verdict. It was, what, three months? Two, two months. Two months of deliberation. <laughs> yes. No, three months. Three months of deliberation. They reached their verdict. The courtroom was packed with everyone, his wife, fans, the public, everybody is in that courtroom that day. 
except for the Night Stalker, who refused to attend. Uh, I didn't know you could refuse to attend. I didn't know you could either. Um, the jury stood and found Richard Ramirez guilty of all counts. 13 oh, counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults. It did not say rape, so I didn't include it. The charges were listed as sexual assaults, 14 burglaries. Sentencing took place on November 7th, 1989, where Richard told his attorney that dying did not scare him. And at this sentencing, Richard made the statement to the courtroom, quote, You do not understand me. You, do, you are not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer grows within us all. No. Nah, son. Nah. Yep. Richard was given, I didn't know this one either. Richard was given 19 death sentences. I didn't realize that was possible. I just thought you got one and done. <laughs> you, you're going <laughs> to get killed and then reincarnate and get killed again. Uh, and 19, then reincarnate. <laughs> 19 times, I guess. And was sentenced to die via electric chair. Um, unfortunately, Richard did not make it to the electric chair and died of lymphoma in Marion General Hospital in Green Bay, California on June 7th, 2013. So he sat on death row for... Over a decade. Yep. And died of lymphoma and hepatitis C. Which is why I said, unfortunately, we did not make it to the electric chair. Wow. Well, Jamie, that was amazing. I hoped it was as good as I hyped it up to be. It was as good as you hyped it up to be, for sure. It has Yay. my brain, like... Mission complete. Guys, like, I was texting Megan, like, through two weeks of this going, like, I'm scared. <laughs> like, I kept psyching myself out because um, I was thinking that I was putting too much information in. And Megan, like, I could hear Megan in the phone, like, give me everything. It was brilliant. So I did. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, let's move on to this. Trivia with Tyler. This trivia is from Tyler. Comes directly from Tyler. So, Ew. yeah, just, hi Tyler. Yeah, say that. Uh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how he sounds at all. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna start this out because I thought you were gonna like do your regular introduction, and I was gonna say I'm a not Tyler, which was <laughs> gonna be a cryptid reference for you because of the not dear. <laughs> I'm a not Tyler. Oh man, I missed a great yeah. opportunity. Solitaire refers to any tabletop game that you can play by yourself, not just the famous card game that was included on Microsoft Windows. What? The card game called Solitaire on Windows is actually called Klondike. What the fuck? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Fun fact. Now you know. <laughs> Final thoughts. 
Okay, so I saw you do the water thing way earlier, and it scared me because I thought we were running out of time. Oh, no, I, I was so just I running So I speed read. I was running out of liquid. Um, I have gotten to step on this way more than you have because you have been reading a lot. Um, it's definitely been Christmassy all day. All um, day. Yeah, I just did one drop of water, and it didn't really change a whole lot. I'm going to try to do two or three-ish. All right, I did two. Let me go in for another one. Yeah. I drank, like, all my water. <laughs> um, I like it both with water and without. Okay. Um, okay. Oh, that's a weird face mm-hmm. you made. I got a little, got a little bit more tingly. Okay. Um, it's definitely different, but I don't know how to describe the di- it. Okay. Follow me here. Mm-hmm. It went from thanks. It went from Christmas to Thanksgiving. <laughs> I am the worst person to have on an alcohol-based podcast. I'm sorry, guys. That's okay. Um, <laughs> so it, I get it went from Christmas to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So Thanksgiving isn't as festive? cranberry. I got cranberry. There you go. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could see that because I got, after adding water, I got a really bitter flavor. Mm-hmm. And it can be cranberry. That actually makes a lot of sense. See, I am smart. I'm just yeah. so slow to get there. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Yeah, that is cranberry. That's kind of brilliant. Good job. Oh, I'm smart. <laughs> you did it. Woo. Um, so, yeah, after I added water, uh, the flavor got more bitter to it. Um, the cinnamon burn is definitely still there. Um but it it added added mm-hmm. that bitter cranberry flavor. Yep. Um, this is this is drastically different from the that other one, the one that I brought, where it like just didn't change. You, anyone who listens to the podcast and doesn't drink whiskey, I'm sure probably thinks me and Tyler make up so much of what we smell and taste. But every whiskey, I, is I don't different. But then again, I grew up. In my grandfather's home where he was he was this, but with wine. So I'm used to hearing alcohol described in funky ways. Okay. So it makes sense. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, this was, this was pretty good. Um, I enjoyed it with water, enjoyed it without water. Um, it's above average for me. Uh, do you have a number you think, Jamie? Um, well, let's see. I gave... That Kentucky bourbon, a five. Um, So this is now, other than Bullet, this is the third bourbon that I've ever had. I don't know. I'm going to give it a seven, seven and a half. Seven or seven and a half? Mm, Seven and a half. I'll be generous. Okay. Um, You and I are on like the same wavelength. I was going a seven as well. Mm -hmm. So above average, not a 10, but one I would definitely come back to. Um. A big issue I have with this particular whiskey is the price point. You're looking at getting a fifth for around $90 to $100. Why? So, yeah. Um, it's small, small batch. Doesn't run very often. Um, and there's a butterfly on the bottle. Oh, so pretty. Oh, the butterfly. So pretty. Uh, but it's not $100 pretty. Nope. But it's 7, seven and 7.5 pretty. That's yep. a good rating. I like mm-hmm. that. Um, well, Jamie, your first official wonder segment, and you did awesome. 
That yeah, was. I was. I don't know if you could see me like holding my phone, like fucking shaking. <laughs> I thought I convinced myself I was gonna fuck this up. You did not at all. In fact, I think you did better reading than like Tyler and I have done combined in ninety episodes. So, Megan, have you heard my mush mouth? Megan, you're gonna make me blush. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Kayla's gonna get you. <laughs> I don't mean anything by it. Kayla. I know you don't. Don't hurt me. I know you don't. Don't hurt me. Kayla's just going to laugh and encourage it. What the fuck are you talking about? Ah, oh, man. Wow. I, I want to say that was a fun, fun wonder segment, but that's. It sounds, sounds mean. Bad like, that to sounds say, bad. given the topic. It, that, yeah, it was. I can't say wonderful. I was like, oh, no. Nope, that one doesn't work. So this the psychology with serial killers I'm absolutely it's enthralled. Fascinating. With it. My father. Fascinating. Yep. If you're listening, I'm gonna talk the fuck at, about you. Um, my father is a textbook like certified sociopath. Wow. And I have never met him. I don't care to. Um, given everything that I have been told by my mother and my family. Um his one letter that he wrote to me, he sent it to his mother's house, my my uh, grandmother, not the ones I lived with, uh, was about uh, the importance of dental hygiene. So I... <laughs> Is he a dentist? No. Okay. He's a convicted felon. He was the guy oh. in Breaking Bad before Breaking Bad was a TV show. Oh, he made meth. Yep. He made meth, sold it to high schoolers. Um... He is a sociopath, and I've always been fascinated with learning that brain. And so that's where I get the fascination with serial killers. And that's why, like, I fall asleep to ghost adventures and can, like, I light up when people are just like, hey, what you know about this freaky-minded book? <laughs> and I'm like, let me tell you. Well, it was... So. It was awesome. I don't know why I'm in interested in it. I'm sure some sort of trauma from my past, but... The best day of my high school experience was Serial Killer Day when the teacher let us come in the room and set bowls of cereal in front of us while we learned about serial killers. That sounds amazing. Why didn't my high school do that? <laughs> That's <know>. not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> Damn it. Public school. Um, all right. Well, we are uh, running out of time, guys. So thank you for tuning in. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to Jamie's first ever wonder seg segment. Uh, and um, I hope you guys tune in next week and continue to listen. Thank you to all yep. of our sponsors, our donators, our, our likers, our reviewers. Everything you do, every little bit helps. Like so. the fuck out of this episode and interact with it on all the ways you can. So hopefully they'll bring me back. Yes. Blow it up. Uh, let's get a lot out of this one, guys. Yep. All right. On that note, um, I think it is time to say don't drink and drive. Yep. Cheers. Fucking lock your doors. God.